Well, it's a good morning. Man, I hope you're well. Hope you're well today. Beautiful colors on the way in. Hope you enjoyed the front edge of uh, fall. And uh, hey, those of you who uh, join us uh, online and also those that are other uh, campuses at uh, uh, East Paris, Knapp Street, and Kentwood, thank you so much for joining us for week one of this series. It's called uh, Daniel, a character in the Old Testament of our Bible, and it's kind of like Daniel, honor in exile. And so uh, I, I just want to begin kind of on a darker tone, talking about, talking about disasters. Uh, it was a week and a half ago that Hurricane Ian hit landfall in uh, southwest Florida. There's these pictures I'm sure you saw of like boats, you know, tossed up on shore. And then the water recedes, and then families come in to survey the damage and try to figure out, you know, if their home is still standing. And many experience, you know, light damage, uh, some shingles have been blown off their house, a tree is knocked down in the front yard, took out a power line, but now power is back, maybe some light water damage. But we just understand other people come back and the house that they had is like gone. And in some extreme situations and areas, a whole street, I mean, the shops, the hotel, the restaurants and houses just, uh, just uh, uh, obliterated. And it, people return to try to, to, try to put the, the pieces back together. You know, we have a word for this called a, a natural disaster. Now, it's not just, just, not just hurricanes. Uh, a tornado in Mississippi decimates a small community, a wildfire in the foothills of California or Colorado, devastate a small town. And it, it's important for us to start with just thinking about kind of like destruction and thinking about disasters because it's exactly where our story begins today. It's the note on which the Old Testament book of Daniel opens. And it begins with uh, armies that are on the march, empires at war. And so uh, it's 605 BC, six centuries before the coming of Jesus. And just to orient us in space, uh, the Babylon over on the right-hand side to the east, Babylon is emerging as a world empire. But the person, the group that's had the power for a long time is Egypt in the lower left. And so the Babylonians and their uh, allies are going to war with Egypt and their allies. And the place that the battle occurs, 605 BC, you can look this up, is the battle of Carchemish, kind of up there at the top. And in that battle, the Babylonians crush the Egyptians. And it's not like both armies going back home. The Babylonians then pursue the Egyptian army all the way down to Egypt. And this is really Egypt's last gasp to become the dominant world empire. Now, if Babylon is attacking Egypt, I just want you to know that Israel is in the middle. Israel is in the way. And Israel had been allied with Egypt. And so on the way down to Egypt, on the way back from Egypt, the Babylonian army takes a little side trip, goes over to Jerusalem, and besieges Jerusalem. This is the note on which the book of Daniel opens. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and what? And besieged it. A siege is a blockade. Nobody out, no food in. No people out, no food in. It's a blockade. 
Now, what happens when an army like the Babylonian army attacks an area is all the people living in the little towns and villages around, all the little hamlets, you run to the city because it would be a fortified city with walls. So you leave your village, go to the city. What this means in Jerusalem is that the population rockets as people in the towns and villages go to Jerusalem. So if you had a food issue before having enough food, now it's much more difficult. The goal of a siege is to starve someone out. And after a while, I mean, the, the people of Israel in Jerusalem, and are you going to go out and fight the Babylonians? These are the people that just defeated the Egyptian army. And so they tap out. And in chapter 1, verse 2, we read these words, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Now, I just want you to notice, it just doesn't say that the Babylonians won. It says that the Lord the creator, the God of Israel, gave Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. You think, well, God wouldn't do that. I mean, they're the chosen people and everything. God had made these promises to them. Yeah, but one of the promises the creator had made to them was drag me through the mud for long enough. Don't think I'm going to protect you. And they had. And he didn't. So what's that deal with the articles of the temple? What's talking about there is the God dishes, <laughs> the cups, the bowls, the gold and silver goblets that are used in the temple. Nebuchadnezzar gets those. What does he do with them? Check this out, second part of verse two. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now, something's going on here that is far different from our culture. Back in the day, it wasn't just your army beat their army. The idea here, when your army beat their army, it was like your God had defeated their God. So the idea here is that the gods of Babylon have beaten up on the God of Israel. And so you take these treasures from the temple of Jerusalem, the, the goblets, the, the bowls, the dishes, silver and gold, and you take those all the way to Babylon and you put those in your temple and it's just a symbol, our God is superior to your God or our gods are superior to your God. Your God, your God is weak, your God is pathetic, your God was unable to help you and unable to rescue you. Beware of Babylon, we have a superior God. Now listen, if you're living in Jerusalem in 605 BC when this happens, I think this could raise all kinds of God questions. One God question is, uh, is, is, is the creator, is he like through with us? Is, is, he, is he divorcing us? <laughs> is God like through with Israel? That's one of the God questions that would surface. Another one is, how can you worship and trust a God who lets that happen to you? And a third question in this catastrophe and in this devastation is, how could God possibly still be at work after that happened? Now, our situation, living in our day, is, look, it's just radically different than Israel being attacked by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. However, these questions do tend to surface. That question, is God through with me? <laughs> Often happens after a, a failure, a personal failure, a miserable failure, an embarrassing failure, 
where you get exposed. Man, not only was it failure, it, it was public failure. And I know the question can surface, is, is God, God, are you, are you done with me? Are you through with me? On the other hand, it's possible to go through a disappointment, a major disappointment, or a series of minor disappointments. And one morning you wake up and in your heart of hearts you just kind of go, I don't know if I trust God anymore. I just don't know if I trust him. And that third question, if you're dealing with heartache or heartbreak, and you've been flipped upside down, upended, it's possible to look at the wreckage in your life and just kind of go, how in the world could God be at work to do anything good out of this mess? While the circumstances are different, I think some of these questions are the same. So preview what's to come in Daniel chapter 1, our first story that we're going to look at. The story unfolds in four scenes. And in these four scenes, there is a common thread that weaves through them where you, you see the fingerprints of God all over the story. And listen, God is still at work, but he's at work in a surprising place, and he's at work in a surprising way. God is going to be at work through four teenagers who are carted off to Babylon, exiled in Babylon. Their names, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I think they might be like, I don't know, like 16 or 17 years old. And God is at work in and around and through them as they are pulled into the Babylonian empire, into the Babylonian government, into the Babylonian administration of Nebuchadnezzar. God is at work in and around and through them in a surprising place and in a surprising way. And my hope is that at the end of our study, there would be more than a few of you that would just offer a simple prayer, God, please be at work. Please be at work in my misfortune. Please be at work in my disappointment. Please be at work in my relocation. Please be at work in our marriage, be at work in our family, be at work in my life as you are at work in these four teenagers carted off to Babylon. I, I, I hope this story meets you powerfully today. Four scenes in the story. Uh, scene number one, we're just calling the program. It's a three-year program that these four teenagers are recruited into. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3, we find these words. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, a cool name, that's the chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. What's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on is that Nebuchadnezzar has a vast and growing empire. As he conquers people after people after people, his empire is growing, his administration is growing, and this is what he's going to do. He's going to pick the best and the brightest out of each group he conquers and bring them in to his Babylonian administration. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells Ashpenaz, this group of people we just conquered in Israel, bring some of their best. I need the valedictorians. Bring the best and the brightest so I can be part of my government. But you had to qualify. 
Six qualifications are given in Daniel chapter 1. Without physical defect, handsome, aptitude for learning, which is interested. Not only are you good looking, there are people who are good looking that are not so bright. Aptitude for learning, well-informed, quick to understand, remember that one, and qualified to serve in the presence of the king in the royal court, which had to do with poise, which had to do with the way you carry yourself, which had to do with how you comport yourself, able to serve in the king. But notice number five there. Number five was quick to understand. Quick to understand. you got to be a quick study. Why? Well, next verse says, uh, uh, verse uh, it says, uh, he was to teach them, this Ashpenaz guy was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Uh, so you have to master, three-year program, three years, and the clock is ticking. You have to master the literature of the Babylonians. The literature of the Babylonians would have included, would have included their history, it would have included their legends, it would have included their, their heroes, would have included their ancestry. The literature of the Babylonians would have included their superstitions. The literature of the Babylonians would have included the movements of the planets and the stars and certain comets that would show up and how they believed those had a uh, relevance or importance to understanding Babylonian decisions and Babylonian culture. The literature of the Babylonians. No show of hands, but I wonder how many of you excel at reading comprehension? No show of hands. Just wonder. You can read really fast, you can understand what you're reading, you can synthesize what you're reading, and you can remember what you've read. I'm just wondering, it's not all of us, but some of us excel in reading comprehension. Now, those of you who think you excel in reading comprehension, there's something I want you to read out loud with me. You ready? It's right here. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeff, isn't that Akkadian cuneiform? Wedge-shaped letters used to symbolize multi-syllable uh, uh, visuals. Yes, that's exactly what that is. And some of you are thinking, Jeff, I can read. I can read fast. I can't read that. Neither could Daniel. They weren't raised with cuneiform. They weren't raised with Akkadian, the language of the Babylonians. This is the deal. Not only did they have to master Babylonian literature, they had to learn to speak, and they had to learn to read Babylonians. That's why that number five, they're quick to learn. The clock is ticking. You better learn fast. Let's just put this into our culture. It's one thing to get a master's degree in Russian literature. You know, Tolstoy's kind of thick, but I think I can work my way through it. It's another thing to have to learn Russian and read Cyrillic in order to begin your classes in Russian literature. The clock is ticking on your mark, get set, go. Three-year program, learn the language, learn the writing, master the literature. Is there anyone here that thinks this might have been a challenge? Well, there are any perks? Yes, there absolutely were perks. Number one, you were going to be eating well. Verse 5, the king, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, this is important, assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. The top food, the best wine, at least you got room and board if you were in the program. So, so far, you're carted off to Babylon, so you've got a new geographic region, you've got a new language, Akkadian, you've got a new writing you have to understand, cuneiform, and you've got a Babylonian, Babylonian country, Babylonian language, Babylonian writing, Babylonian food, and next, they give you a Babylonian name. 
Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel are given Babylonian names. Here they are. Their new names are Daniel is changed to Belteshazzar, Hananiah is changed to Shadrach, Mishael is changed to Meshach, and Azariah is changed to Abednego. And right now, some of you who have the advantage of having attended Sunday school when you were young are going, ding, 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 ding. I've never heard of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's where those guys are. Exactly. Exiled in Babylon, shoved in to this three-year program. With the change of their names, it was an attempt to change everything. Total indoctrination. Total immersion. If these guys were 16, 17 years old, this is Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to make them fully Babylonian and to wash away any vestiges of their Jewish past. Welcome to the program. Now, earlier, that verse about the room and board where it said the king assigned them a daily allotment of food and wine, best food, best wine, from like Nebuchadnezzar's estate, a couple of you are probably going, whoa, whoa, Jeff, time out. In the Jewish law, weren't there some, like, diet rules? I mean, some of you know the, the big one. It was forbidden for the Jews in their law to eat, to eat pork, right? And there's other stuff in, the, in there, too. Some uh, shell fish, like lobster, uh, clams, stuff like that, types of birds that were on the unclean list. You go, okay, wait a minute. Maybe there's a problem here. What if Nebuchadnezzar, is Nebuchadnezzar going to put food in front of these four guys? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, that are on the not clean list? Uh, yeah. And is that going to cause a challenge, a problem? Yeah. Scene two of the story is the king's table. I plead with you to remember that these guys are teenagers. And Daniel kind of like pushed to the front as a spokesman for the others. And he goes, this food that we're being given, in good conscience, we can't eat some of this stuff. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved, seems like he made a decision, he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official, that's Ashpenaz, for permission not to defile himself in this way. And I don't know whether it was what the food was, like pork, or whether it was the way that it was prepared, or whether it had first been offered to Babylonian gods. I don't know what the rationale was behind it. But Daniel and his friends, they look at this meal and they go, uh, we need to ask for permission not to eat the food that's being assigned to us. Now, good news. This Ashpenaz guy who's in charge of the court, he likes Daniel. He likes Daniel a lot. Uh, verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Now, I need you to note something. It's not just that this guy has favor toward Daniel. It's that God, God is credited here in the story of giving favor toward Daniel. See, already it's like the fingerprints of God are around the story. God is at work in this relocation, in this misfortune, in this upheaval, and God is actively moving in and around and through the story, but in a surprising way and in a surprising place. So Ashpenaz looks with favor and compassion on Daniel. So things are going to go well. No, verse 10. 
But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel, I'm all right if you want to risk your life for your faith. Don't risk my life for your faith. <laughs> you got to understand, if we show up after three years and you're standing there with the other recruits in the program and Nebuchadnezzar's walking down the line and say, what happened with these guys? They look peaked. They look malnourished. They look unhealthy. They look skinnier. He's going to turn to me and I'm going to say, well, I decided to change their diet. He's going to kill me. And Nebuchadnezzar would do it. We have something of an impasse here. But uh, the reason Daniel has this challenge, the reason Daniel has this challenge is because he is, a, he is a citizen of two kingdoms. He is a citizen of two kingdoms. Daniel really, really, really wants to serve the administration of Babylon well. Daniel wants to be very loyal to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. He wants to bring his best to this new role. But at the same time, he desires to be deeply loyal to his God. And sometimes these things are going to be in conflict. It's the challenge, my friends, it's the challenge of finding yourself as a citizen of two kingdoms. Now, we use a term in our culture, we use the word subculture. Because it's not just American culture, but there are cultures within a culture. There's a, a professional sports culture. There's going to be a culture at a law firm, a university, a state college culture. There can be a culture within a uh, financial firm, uh, it, 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 restaurants. There can even be a kitchen culture. But someone who says, okay, listen, I live within that culture, university culture, law firm culture, uh, financial advisor culture, family culture, kitchen culture, but... I've also declared myself as a follower of the Christ. There are times when these cultures will collide. Are you with me on this? There's a time when you can walk through and go, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. But then there's certain things that surface and you go, yeah, not okay. It's like this. Okay, 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 not okay. This is Daniel. This is Daniel and his friends. Haul us to Babylon. Okay. Put us in your three-year program. Okay. Teach us Akkadian. Okay. Teach us to read cuneiform. Okay. Change our names. Okay, here's your food. Help me here. Not okay. Not okay. Okay, okay, okay. Not okay. My friends, know that this will happen or should happen to you, that there are just times when whatever culture you're part of where you have to go some, yeah, okay, 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 not okay. Now, I'm about to present a case study type thing on this. This may be wildly different from anything you'd ever experience, but it helps us get our, our minds around this. So a guy is a sales rep in the Grand Rapids area. He's working remotely. The company that he works for is out of state. The person he reports to, the sales manager, is out of state. The sales manager contacts him. They're talking on the phone. He says, hey, we got a couple months from now, we got this uh, event coming up in New Orleans. We'd love to have you go down and represent it, us in New Orleans. Okay. Okay. Uh, there is a client that we've been working on. There is a possibility of a lot of business with this client. We'd like you to interface and interact with the client. Okay. We would like you to take him out for drinks in the evening when all of the meetings are over. Okay. At a strip club. 
not okay. Oh, so you're judging them. I'm not judging them. I'm judging me. That's, that's not a place. I'm not saying where they need to belong. I know. I don't belong there. Hey, listen, listen. I will hire a limo. I will get up. Oh, dark hundred in the morning. I, I, you know, I'll take them to a six o'clock tea time, a seven o'clock tea time at one of the best golf courses we can find in the area. I will scour New Orleans to try to find the best dining experience possible and try to pull strings to get us reservations. I'll bend over backwards to help out, but I don't belong there. Okay, okay, okay. Not okay. Now listen, this may be wildly different from anything you've ever experienced in your life, and yet some of you are looking at me going, Jeff, you just described my life. The point is that over the next week or two, just kind of be on the lookout for the challenge of being a citizen of two kingdoms, two cultures, a Jesus culture and this other culture that we're part of. Okay, okay, okay. Not okay there. This isn't just sales managers. Man, this is eighth graders. Uh, hey, man, come over Friday night. Okay. Uh, we're going to order some pizzas. Okay. We're going to play video games. Okay. Uh, then we're going to, Jonathan lives about half a mile away. We're going to walk to Jonathan's house. Okay. By the way, his parents are out of town. His high school big sister is in charge of watching him. She doesn't care what he does. Let's spend the night there, and then I want you to tell your mom that you spent the night at my place. Uh, I don't like lying to my parents. Not okay. Why? They'll never find out. Oh, no, no. Two things. Number one, they always find out. My mom has superpowers. She just <laughs> figures these things out. Secondly, I would know. Uh, I just don't like lying to my parents. Okay, okay, okay. Not okay. I, listen, I have no idea what you're up against. I have no idea whether it will intersect with whatever culture you find yourself in. I'm just telling you, there are points where this will apply to every single one of us. Sometimes it's like a work type thing. Sometimes, my friends, sometimes it's family pressure. There's a couple, they, they, you know, they, they live in this house. They've lived in it for four, five, six years. They've done some great landscaping around it, and they made some improvements on the inside, but it's... It's simple, and nothing about her side of the family is simple. They don't do simple with anything. Now, cars, houses, vacations, I mean, everything's over the top. And so there's a day when the brother-in-law is there, and the brother-in-law, like, they're cooking some steaks in the back, and the kids are playing. And so says, so how long are you guys going to live here? And the guy looks over and gets eye contact with his wife because they've had this conversation before. And there's just immediate feeling of feeling like you're not enough. Do you ever have this emotion? You kind of feel like you're not enough, like you don't quite measure up. And he looks at the brother-in-law, smiles, and says, yeah, I don't know. We're, you know, we're content here, but we'll see. Now, the, the truth is, in the, he caught them in this moment where they are, they are breathing the air of financial margin. And it took them a long time to get there. Financial margin, money to spend, some money to put away in savings, and some money to give away, and they love it. And they've actually done the math. I mean, they've walked through open houses, loved different places, but then said, okay, the price point is here, and then we're moving the interest rate from the three-something to the six-something, and taxes and insurance, and they add it up, and they realize that every month their nose will just barely be above water. Every penny committed before the month begins. And they're going, we're not going to go there. 
Okay, 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 yes, we can vacation with the family this winter. Okay, yes, we would love to pitch in for this gift for grandma and grandpa. Okay, okay, upgrade houses, because you, no, not okay. Now, this may not seem like a spiritual conversation. This may seem like just a matter of practical finances. But listen, what is driving this for this couple is that there was a point in their lives where they said, we want to honor God with our finances. We want to honor God with our spending, with our saving, and with our generosity. We want to honor God with our finances. And strangely, as they find themselves honoring God with their finances, it has given them peace of mind and heart and margin that is unbelievable. Okay, 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 not okay. Sometimes it's family pressure and it's a family culture. So again, I don't know where this will show itself in your life, but I just want you to say this expression with me so you can practice. It's just the expression, not okay. Are you ready? Not okay. Practice this, you'll need it. Now this dude, Ashpenaz, he didn't actually say no. It's more like, mm, can you come up with a scenario where you can do your Jewish diet thing, but I don't get killed in the process? And so it seems to me like the conversation shifts, and now Daniel goes to like the next guy down, like his immediate supervisor, and he proposes, this is what he proposes, scene three, a test drive. A 10-day diet test drive. Daniel approaches his immediate supervisor and says, okay, give me 10 days, give me 10 days. For 10 days, we'll drink water, in 10 days, we'll eat nothing but vegetables. And after 10 days, after 10 short days, just kind of look us over, see if we seem malnourished, see if we see un seem underweight, see if we see like we're losing anything physically on the other guys in the program. And then after 10 days, make a decision based on what you see. It's a 10-day diet test drive, which, by the way, isn't that long. I mean, line up 20 people and tell me, Hey, by the way, a bunch of people have only had cheeseburgers for the last 10 days. A bunch of them have only had celery. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. I don't know that 10 days is enough time to make an extreme difference in someone's uh, you know, complexion and pre uh, presence. So I think what Daniel is hoping here is that God will intervene in some way. So this is how it goes down, uh, verse 12. Uh, Please test your servants for 10 days. There it is. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then, after the 10-day test drive, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and then treat your servants, us, in accordance with what you see. I need you to notice something. I need you to notice something that is critical for where we are living right now in our fine country. I need you to notice that Daniel is polite. It is possible, apparently, to express an opinion without being rude or demeaning. It's not simply that Daniel is making a case. It's how Daniel is making a case. With Ashpenaz, he graciously asks permission. With this guy, he says, please, he's looking for a win-win. Daniel is doing everything he can to be as cooperative as he can be. He doesn't look nasty. He doesn't look rude. He doesn't look demeaning. My dear friends, in our culture, in these days, we know how to have a disagreement. 
we need a lot of training in how to have a disagreement in a way that respects and honors the person on the other side. I'm just telling you, uh, we ought to memorize this section of Daniel chapter 1. We need to watch him. We need to know him and see how. It's not just that he takes a stand. It's that he's able to take a stand with, with dignity and respect and with honor for the other person. I'm just telling you, huge learning opportunity here in the way Daniel presents himself. One last word on this. It is very, very difficult to win someone over, to win their heart over while being rude and disrespectful to them. Almost never happens to win someone over while being rude and disrespectful and demeaning. Daniel is just a huge example here of how to disagree in a respectful way. So he gives this like 10-day test drive. And the guy in charge goes, yeah, okay, we'll give it a shot. I mean, it's not enough time for like someone to get beheaded, right? Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Ezra, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Again, it's like the fingerprints of God are on this. He's working in, he's working around, he's working through. Major mistake is to suppose, to presuppose that God is uninvolved and would not want to intervene. Here, God wants to be involved and desires to intervene. And that's an inference from the story, but the very next verse, verse 17, uh, just says it candidly, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. It's like, yeah, yeah, they were very smart, they were dedicated, they were devoted students, but it's like God gave, he put his force behind them and his favor behind them in their academic studies for knowledge and understanding. Oh, then a word about Daniel. And Daniel, Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. That's going to come up later in our stories. Next week, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel steps in to interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. What I'm saying here is that God is at work, God is at work, God is at work. In and around and through their disruption and their relocation and their misfortune, God is at work, but in a surprising way and in a surprising place. And the clock is ticking. Year one, I mean, new country, new customs, new place, far from home. Year one, language school. And all of a sudden, it's gone. Year one is gone. Literature studies, the history, the heroes, the legends, the superstitions of Babylon, the planets and what they thought those meant. And all of a sudden, year two is gone. Now you're no longer counting in years, you're counting in months. Half a year is left, and now you're counting in weeks. And the day is coming for scene four, the final exam. The final exam at the end of this three-year program was not a written multiple-choice exam taken at a desk. You were hauled in front of the big guy. And he was going to question you, not only to see what you knew, but how did you carry yourself? Did you have the, 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 the dignity of someone that he would want in his court? Did you have the presence? How did you come across? Not, not, not just can you answer the questions, but how do you answer the questions? The chapter ends this way. 
the king, Nebuchadnezzar, talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them like 10 times better than all the magicians and the enchanters of his whole kingdom. In the last verse of the story, last verse of the chapter, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus wasn't even part of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians get upended and the Persians come in. Cyrus is a Persian, which means that Daniel is part of the administration, not only for the Babylonians, but carries over into the next world government. If my math is right, Daniel is center stage for about 60 years. We find him first as a teenager, and he's serving into his 70s. And God is at work in and around and through the life of this guy named Daniel and his buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. God is at work, God is at work, God is at work, but in a surprising way and in a surprising place. I need you to remember that the story begins with a blockade. The Babylonian army surrounds Jerusalem and is starving it out. You tap out. You open your doors to the Babylonian. They come in and loot your temple and haul their stuff off to the temple of their gods. The God of Israel, the creator of the universe, is pathetic. He is weak. He is unengaged. He is uninvolved. And he is unable to help you. If I lived in Jerusalem at the time, it would raise all kinds of God questions for me. Is he through with us? Can he be trusted? And how in the world can he possibly be at work in this mess? Then we find these four teenagers emerge. God gave Daniel favor with uh, the overseer, Ashpenaz. God gave them wisdom and understanding. The fingerprints of God are all over the story. God is at work in a surprising way and in a surprising place. And I think from this... As you leave a building and go to your car and you drive home from our hearts should raise a prayer that just goes, God, please be at work. Like you were at work in the Daniel story, please be at work in my story. Be at work in my disappointment. Be at work in our disruption. Be at work in our relocation. Be at work in our lives as you we're at work in their lives. Please be at work. Please be at work, but you might discover that it is in a surprising way and in a surprising place. Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and our other campuses as well. Hey, uh, I just want to thank you for being here and being part of week one, launching this series with us. I invite you back uh, next week as we continue, continue. Daniel, uh, honor, honor in exile. But as you move into your week, may our gracious God guide you. May he give you wisdom. May he give you understanding. May he give you discernment. May he give you the courage and insight to be able to say, not okay, and that is what you need to say. May he give you the poise and the grace to be able to honor and respect 
Gracious God, be at work, be at work, please be at work in and through our lives this week. We ask this in the name of Jesus who came for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.